Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third season of the CSEP podcast. This season, we thought we would take a different approach to our typical format, and instead of a single host conducting a one-on-one interview, we will instead have a different panel of guests on each episode to discuss a broad range of topics. This season, our episodes will focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion to better understand how CSEP members can work with people from all backgrounds and lifestyles. In this episode, I am thrilled to introduce our guests, Keely Shaw, Miranda Weiss, and Jennifer Tomasoni. Keely Shaw is a Paralympic cyclist who, when we sat down to talk, had just returned from Tokyo, where she competed at the Paralympic Games. Miranda Weiss is a trainer and studio owner who has worked with many populations during her career, including postnatal moms and high-performance athletes. Jen Tomasoni is a researcher at Queen's University. The goal of Jen's research program is to optimize physical activity participation for Canadians of all abilities. With that, let's get into Season 3, Episode 1 of the CSEP Podcast. Hi, Keely, Miranda, and Jen. Thanks again for agreeing to participate in the podcast. If each of you would like to tell us a bit about yourself, we can start with Keely and go from there to Miranda and then Jen. So as mentioned, I'm Keely Shaw. I am on the national paracycling team. Um, We got home from Tokyo. I'm on about two weeks now, so officially over the jet lag. And when I'm not training, I am doing my PhD at the University of Saskatchewan. So I'm a PhD candidate working under Dr. Phil Chilibeth and Dr. Gordon Zello focusing on sport nutrition and exercise physiology. And my niche area is really around those special populations. So Paralympic athletes, female athletes, and master's level athletes. Awesome. Uh, Welcome to the show. And uh, Miranda, if you'd like to go next. Sure. I'm Miranda Weiss. I am an exercise physiologist. I as well uh, focus on postnatal fitness and yoga. Um, I own my own fitness studio in North Battleford, Saskatchewan called Pipes Fitness, and we offer pretty much everything. So I can spend my day working with toddlers on building confidence and learning basically how to land and how to jump and how to climb. And I work right up into high performance. Uh, I have some women's national hockey league players. um, And then I also run fitness classes, do personal training. Um, I definitely am going in the direction of focusing on um, underrepresented populations or just reaching the populations that don't fit the generic fitness stream. Um, People with injuries, people with health conditions. uh, That's the direction that I am kind of leaning into as my own life changes. Awesome. And, And Jen? Thanks for having me today. So my name is Jen Tomasoni and I'm an associate professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's in Kingston. My academic training is in exercise psychology for persons with disabilities, as well as knowledge translation, which is all about understanding the methods and the practices that we use to bring research knowledge into action in the real world. My current research focuses on enhancing participation in physical activity for persons with disabilities, specifically in community-based exercise programs. So I'm privileged to be a co-director of RevDEP, which is an adapted exercise program in Kingston, 
where community members with physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities come to exercise twice a week with trained volunteers who work the members through tailored exercise programs. Now, of course, during COVID and in this aftermath of COVID, we are running the program in a virtual space, um, but we do train our volunteers in exercise programming best practices and how to adapt to exercise prescriptions for persons with disabilities. And then as an aside, I'm also the knowledge translation lead for the Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines for adults. And so I get to work closely with CSEP, Participation, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and researchers and practitioners from all across Canada to enhance the awareness, knowledge, and use of the guidelines among Canadians and thinking around how we do that in an inclusive and, di and diverse way. So thanks for having me. Awesome. It's very nice to meet all of you. The goal for this episode is to hopefully inspire an interesting and open discourse between all of our guests. So with that, let's dive right into it. What does a typical day for each of you look like? I can start on that. So because we just got back from Tokyo, my life kind of looks a little bit different, focusing more on research, a little bit less on training. But in a typical day when I am on my typical training schedule, if I'm doing weight, strength, and conditioning, I'll usually do that first thing in the morning, be done by 7.30 or so at my computer by 8. I'll do research from research general schoolwork, teaching, what have you, from probably around 8 until 2-ish, when I'll typically go for my training ride. And that can last anywhere from 90 minutes to 4 hours, depending on where we're at in the typical day. Um, if I'm really busy with lots of deadlines, I might go back to my computer after training. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't usually have a whole lot of brain power left um, at that point. So I try to call it a day when possible, but that's not always the way life goes. If I'm not doing weights, I'll usually try to have a pretty chill morning, drink some tea, enjoy the calm before the storm, still get to my computer around eight, be out on my bike sometime between noon and two, again, for that 90 minute to four hour and then same kind of thing, try to shut it down after that. Awesome. And, and how about you, Miranda? Healy, that's so amazing. I'm so excited for you. Uh, the work that goes into that, hey? Uh, my days are so very different uh, and things are changing. Working with, I work with lots of students and I work with a lot of people who are dealing with uh, stress-related stuff right now with everything going on in the world. Um, everything looks really different for me right now. I'm still, I teach, I, lots of my workouts come from my class-based um, day. So I'll start at 6 a.m. Then I have clients coming in now around like 7 a.m. to do personal training. Big switch because lots of them were coming in during the day last year because they weren't in school. They were doing virtual schooling. So it was so crazy last year to be um, spending most of my day with students. Um, so there's been that switch. I've got them coming in in the morning and in the evenings, and there's actually sport life going on in school and in competitive sport this year. So that's really exciting. Um, but yes, it, it has definitely flipped my days to being more early mornings and evenings. And then during the day, working with postnatal populations, as well as Lots of people that are getting in the gym and getting in a workout, lots for mental health, um, managing stress and managing just kind of the chaos right now. So there's been that big switch for sure. Um, my own personal is focusing on physio exercises just to keep good strength and stabilizers. My goal in life is to try and stay on my feet. So 
though I face a disease that's kind of slowly deteriorating, I am trying my best to keep my neuropathy at bay and my spirits up high. So lots of yoga as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's been lots of early mornings and late nights trying to fit people in and trying to hang out with my kids and chill out during the day. So I get a little bit of normalcy, uh, and get to actually see my family with working mornings and working evenings, like lots of fitness professionals would completely understand. And, and how about yourself, Jen? So like my colleagues here, every day is different for me as a researcher as well. Uh, some days are really quiet. I work alone. I read art journal articles, write my own papers and grants or review other people's work. Um, almost every day I interact with my graduate students who I supervise and are working towards their degrees in exercise um, promotion for persons with disabilities and knowledge translation. And I also get to teach the undergraduate students um, almost every day. And so these are the undergraduate students who take on the leadership roles in that RevDEP program I mentioned earlier. Um, but the days that are most exciting for me are the days that I get to interact with the different stakeholders who use my research. So the type of research approach that I take is called Integrated Knowledge Translation or IKT. And so this means that my research is a collaborative process. So instead of me as an individual researcher, I actually work as part of a team. And together we decide on the types of research problems we wanna tackle, how we tackle them, how we interpret our findings and how to share our findings with others. So more traditional research approaches tend to study a phenomenon within a population but an IKT approach looks to engage the members of that population. So the members who will actually use the research in their day-to-day -day lives and actively involve them as research team members. So the whole reason we do this is because the research would then be easier to apply in practice if those who will use and benefit it are actually part of the research process themselves. And so I get to spend a lot of time communicating and meeting with and learning from people like persons with disabilities, exercise programs, staff and volunteers, different organizations that promote physical activity. And this is really important to me because I don't identify as having a disability myself. And so if I'm going to be promoting physical activity to persons with disabilities, I, I really want to draw on the lived experience of others. And so when I'm not a researcher, I am a mom. I have a four-year-old daughter and we spend lots of time being active in interesting ways, like going to the park, having after-dinner dance parties and just um, trying to keep up with her um, keeps me active as well. That sounds perfect. And I look forward to hearing more about your research later in this episode. On that note, would anyone be willing to describe their role in training through diversity and how it has impacted their lived experiences? I can jump there. I have. No, no shyness here being the first one to break the ice. So um, just for a little bit of context, when I was 15, I fell off my horse and I broke a blood vessel in my brain. And that led to complete paralysis on the left side of my body. Clinically, we would call it spastic hemiplegia. Um, through a variety and many, many therapy sessions, I regained about 70-ish percent function on the left side of my body. So I obviously still have a rather marked deficit on that side. And before I got hurt, I was a hockey player. And I had big dreams of playing university hockey, playing Olympic level hockey. And hockey was kind of my first true love. But then when I got hurt and I went back to playing hockey, I was no longer the player I was. So I can't do a full stride length on the left side of my body. I can't hold on to my stick in certain situations. If it's really cold, my hand just stops working. And probably the most frustrating was the puck moves too fast. My brain actually can't keep up with it anymore. 
And I found that really frustrating, but I, I continued to try, continued to train to get back to that hockey player I was because that was all I knew. As a 15-year-old, you know, my sport, my friends were the most important part of my life. And now all of a sudden this was more or less ripped away from me. But I wasn't, I was clinging on to every single thread I could because I didn't know who I could be if not a hockey player. So I, you know, continued in this sport and this physical activity that I really didn't enjoy anymore. It was so frustrating. It brought me many, many tears on many, many nights. Um, and that was really tough. And it wasn't until I found cycling and really a sport that I had never done before I got hurt that I started to love sport again. And I started to want to go training. I started to want to be active again instead of doing it just because that's what I thought I should do. And once I was able to find that sport that I loved and that I wasn't constantly comparing myself to a different version of um, myself, that's when I really started to thrive and I really started to find my love for physical activity, for competitiveness, and just for sport in general again. And then through entering the paracycling world, my eyes were so open to what is possible when dealing with people with impairments. So myself, because the left side of my body doesn't work, I've got adaptations on my bike so that my right hand does everything. Cycling is kind of a neat sport because it's got a classification for every type of physical impairment. There are racing tricycles for people with balance impairments. There are hand bikes for um, double amputees or people with spinal cord injuries. There are tandem bikes for those with a visual impairment. So in being in, immersed in that world, I was really able to um, just see what is possible and learn that really anything is possible. We just need to give these people with impairments the confidence to ask for what they need and the resources to achieve whatever activity it is they're trying to achieve, even if it looks a little bit different than their able-bodied peers. And uh, Miranda, how, how about yourself? Uh, I just wanted to touch on, on something you said there, Keely. Isn't it really interesting um, how when you start having a disability or some sort of impairment and you lose some of your sport that you used to be so involved in, how it feels like you're so alone, but then when you're pointed in the direction of all these sport opportunities and parasport and all those sorts of things, how it's like there is this whole underground world that exists, right? But for a while there, it feels like, like you don't have another option. And then, yeah, when you, when you come to realize all these other associations and organizations and teams and people that this is a huge part of their life, it's definitely uplifting to realize, okay, I can still have sport, right? For at the beginning, it definitely is hundred percent discouraging. You know, and I think if I could just jump in for a second as exercise professionals, I think there's something to be said for being aware of parasport, what the classifiable impairments are mm -hmm. and having a general idea of who to contact. Honestly, I think had I been introduced to parasport so much earlier in my life with a disability, I could have saved myself so much mental anguish and honestly, probably some of the darkest times of my life. If I would have known that I don't, I don't have to be expected to keep up with people with four functioning limbs. There are sports that are specifically suited for people with my impairment. There are people here who have the knowledge to help me excel and still be a high performance athlete. And that I didn't lose that dream 
when I lost function in my body. Where did you end up? Sorry, I'm deterring us, but I just wanted to ask this before I forget. Um, where did you end up getting turned in that direction? Who sent you that direction? So I was actually working out at the gym at the University of Saskatchewan. And he was a fellow classmate who played wheelchair basketball and had kind of said, hey, I heard your story. Come with me to see my sports scientist. So I went with her to see her dude. And he kind of said, yep, you're definitely classifiable. Pick a sport. And I mean, I'd just been cycling kind of um, as a way to commute back and forth to the university. So I thought this might be kind of cool. My $200 steel frame, really, really heavy Canadian tire bike. And then I fell in love with it pretty much right away. Bought myself a good road bike when I finished my undergrad degree. Entered a race the next year and I was hooked. That's so awesome. Um, okay, so sorry, we got deterred there, but that was really awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so I, two years ago, got diagnosed with uh, X-linked rare disease called adrenal leukodystrophy. So it's actually a disease that got carried on to my son. Um, there's no history of it after genetic testing for it being in my family. And so, yeah, after having my son, I could feel, I would try run and I couldn't pick up my legs and I was tripping. And as an exercise physiologist who worked in exercise therapy, I spent a year being like, okay, like maybe during my pregnancy, I lost like my hip flexor strength or my groins are getting weak. And so trying to tweak and coming up with exercises to keep myself going and setting up little running programs to try and work on that. Anyway. So then, um, then I started getting into like bladder incontinence. And so then again, just as my doctors would say, it was like, maybe it's a postnatal related issue. And so I, being a postnatal fitness specialist, worked on pelvic floor, went for my physio, nothing showing up. And then, um, so then it ended up being, okay, well, there's some neuropathy going on here. And it's really interesting um, when you're someone who understands the human body and how everything's supposed to be working and you're trying to essentially self-diagnose what is going on. You know, something's not right, but you never think like, I wonder if it's neuropathy, you know, you never really go there. And, and with any health condition, it's, you start at the top with the most common things that it could be. And you check off those boxes. And if the treatments for that don't work, then you go to the next thing. So uh, what I live with is actually called adrenal myeloneuropathy. It is when you have an excessive buildup of very long chain fatty acids, it essentially creates like a toxic environment for your nerves. And so your myelin sheath slowly deteriorates. Um, it is in men more predominant. It's very uncommon. They say, although the more women I meet in the world with AMN as carriers, it's not that uncommon. However, our symptoms for it are less significant than a lot of men. And so it's kind of, no, I don't like to say brushed off, but it really, it is, um, as carriers were seen as not supposed to have symptoms. So it was very strange and ironic that as a carrier, my symptoms came up, but may have saved my, my son's life. Cause he now has to go for MRIs for young boys. What it means is it deteriorates your brain. So we have to watch to make sure that there's none of that going on. Anyways, I'll speak to the myelone, uh, adrenal myeloneuropathy. And so over the last two years, 
Um, despite trying to keep up with like all of my weight training and, and keep up with sport, my sport was volleyball. Um, I see a decrease in my mobility. I definitely find weakness in groin. I have to walk with a cane now, just mostly for balance. And so as a fitness instructor, I went from being able to do whatever I wanted to do, teach three classes a day, four classes a day to essentially trying to mostly instruct and not have to do a ton yet still show to my clientele that it's important to stay mobile and to do strength, even when you do face, um, limitations or restrictions. So for me, just like you, Keely, I played volleyball until the point that I felt like my reaction time was five seconds after the ball went by me, I'm falling to the floor and taking 10 seconds to get up, to get the ball. And it was like, definitely a mind game. I think that that is the biggest thing when you go from being able to do whatever you want with your body to having to make adaptations, but wanting to keep up because you generally speaking in fitness, there's that competition part, right? There's that part where you want to keep pushing and you want to keep um, improving and doing better. And so I always refer back to this point in my life where when I, when I entered university, I actually originally went for psychology. And the first year was really challenging. And I was like, what do I love? And it was like, I love fitness and I love staying active. And so I switched my degree to kinesiology. And about well, eight months ago, I had this realization where fitness had gone from a point that used to be my pick me up. That's what kept me up high and sport to it was what was at the bottom. It actually I went into sport and I went into my workouts and I left feeling defeated. And there's nothing worse than when you rely on your body and your that's your thing for that to be leading you to feeling the defeat. So I've actually, I'm supposed to be starting playing with a sledge hockey team this year. Um, I had no direction on sport. That's why I think it's really important hundred percent as fitness professionals that we know avenues to send people. I ended up asking my hairdresser because her sister played on a rugby team in a city near me. So she directed me to Sask wheelchair sport. And, and then I connected with the team in Saskatoon, but a big thing for me too, is like, okay, I can do a couple jumping jacks. So, so should I be playing in a, in a sport, you know, like you almost feel like an imposter until people are like, Oh my God, you have to drop that ego of like trying to keep up with what you used to do and step into this new world full of people who live the same thing as what you do. So I'm really excited for that this fall. Um, and I'm super excited to learn more about options that are out there for people that are living with disability who need that competition and need that sport that really keeps us going uh, mentally and physically. You decide you want a summer sport as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder if she likes racing bikes because I bet we could get you on a trike if balance is an issue or a two-wheeled bike. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's, that really resonates with me, just what you had said about, you know, finding, finding your tribe really and realizing that you're not an imposter. Because I had that for a really long time, even to the point where when I was going to go see this physio, I told my parents and they're like, but why? You're not a para-athlete. Once like, I, I have 70% function on half of my body. I am classifiably and 
undeniably somebody living with a disability. You might not know it if you don't know what to look for, but undeniably, yes, I am a classifiable para-athlete. And to hear some of the people in my life say, there's nothing wrong with you. It, I didn't think of it then, but it's almost invalidating, right? It's, well, then why can't I do all these different things where there's nothing wrong to say half your body doesn't work the way it should. That's, that's just my reality. And that doesn't make anything more or less. That's just the reality that I live with. And now we're going to adapt things um, to account for that. So that meant finding para sport for me. And it sounds like for you, hopefully sledge hockey. And as maybe some of the people in your circle have said, dropping your ego and saying, no, you, you have a disability and let's move on. Today's podcast code word is Tokyo. Keeley participated in the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. CSEP members can log into their CSEP account to add this word for PDCs. Um, I know that's been a really huge thing for me too, is that everyone in my community knows me as a fitness person, right? I look the same. Now people are, I get asked lots if I hurt my knee or if I hurt my ankle when I'm walking with my cane or what I did to myself. Cause my gait is I'm, I walk very rigid. Um, but yes, when you look the same, but your body does not function the same is a huge thing. And I know I, the term disability, I don't have a problem with, but it was me literally feeling like, do I qualify? And my friends are like, you can't carry your kids. Like I can't carry my children. I need help with lots of things throughout the day, which I now ask for. But when you look the same and I'm running a fitness business, it feels very imposter to be like, I have a disability. And that one of my friends said to me, are you going to wait until you're dragging yourself on your elbows to be like, okay, maybe I have a disability. And it's like how you view yourself and how you, and how others see you changing too, right. Is, is sometimes just what you need to hear. I think too, in, by addressing it yourself, you're almost giving permission to those around you to address it instead of it being the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about and nobody wants to consider the one I get asked a lot. Did I hurt my arm? And then usually I'll say, well, no, like I have a brain injury. It's actually my brain, not my arm. And most people are, Oh, really? Like, I'm sorry to hear that. Tell me more. But I was at the store one day and somebody asked that and I said, it was my arm and she'd been chatting us up, um, telling us where all the best produce was. And all of a sudden her eyes were down. She was on to the next customer, just completely ignored. And we walked away. My mom said, wow, you made her feel awful. But that, that's not on me. 100%. That's not on me to have to explain my disability. That's like, it straight up, it was a poor reaction on her end. But again, it's not my responsibility to try to sugarcoat the fact that there's nothing wrong with my arm and it's my brain. And I think if we can acknowledge it, then again, that gives other people the chance to acknowledge it and even the chance to learn more. Mm-hmm. Cause you do get the deer in the headlights look sometimes, right? Where somebody is like, Oh, what'd you do to yourself? Did you hurt yourself? And I'm like, no, I was actually, I have a rare disease that affects like my, I have neuropathy from it. And then it's just like, well, I shouldn't have asked. And it's like, no, it's okay. Like it is what it is. Or I get lots of times to ask if I have MS or something I'm like, no, I have a rare disease. And and it, then it's like breaks and it's like, no, let's talk about it because these are things that affect people. And 
uh, how I would have reacted or the questions that I would have asked um, would have been much different prior to this. I always, I think you get a different view on things too. There was one day that I was, I walked into a store and there were no carts. And so I waited because I can't shop without my cart will help me anyways. And so I waited and this older couple came in and seen that I was waiting. And when they brought in a cart, they just took it. And I was like, okay, no, that's fine. And I know they were looking at me thinking, well, she doesn't really need a cart. So then the, the next group of people come in, it was a mom carrying a baby in a carrier. So I was like, go ahead, take it. And everyone just kept coming in and taking carts while I was standing there waiting. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to take the next cart. Cause I know that I need it. And I know there's all these other people that need it too, but it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, if you don't identify to yourself that step up, you're, you need to grab the cart then everyone's going to just keep assuming that you're good to go. And, and it's just little things like that, that I'm like, Oh, you cannot assume just because someone's not in a wheelchair doesn't mean they don't have a disability. And it's really, it's been a big eye opener and it's really awesome because then I can share that view and that knowledge with as many people as possible. It's unintentional too, right? It's just, you don't think about it that way unless you face it. I'll jump in here and I, I really do want to thank um, Keely and Miranda for your honesty and your openness. I think you've really spoken to the changing identity that comes with the change in function when you have an acquired disability and you've sent a loud message that we can't just assume someone's ability or need. And both of those messages are important for fitness professionals to be aware of when they're when they're working with clients. And, and I think your underlying message is going to be similar to the one I might share here, um, where if we can match people's abilities to the physical activity, um, people then may not have to experience the angst that Keely spoke about and the frustration and isolation that Miranda spoke about. And so maybe I'll share my take on that message as well from being um, someone who's been a program provider and a researcher in the area. Um, so before I did my PhD, I actually was the program coordinator for RevDep, and so I got to work closely training people with disabilities in the exercise program. And before this, I just sort of assumed that people with disabilities all needed the exact same thing. And once I actually got to work closely with people, I was able to witness how important exercise not only is for them, but how diverse their exercise experience can and needs to be if we want to meet their needs. And so because I continue to work closely with people with disabilities through my research, I get to continue to witness the diversity of the experiences and I adjust our research program and my research accordingly. So for example, um, any listeners out there who do um, more traditional research, you might um, look at your data assuming that everyone with a particular of a particular population, such as a particular disability, needs the exact same type of exercise program or the same dose of exercise. And so you might study the impact of that exercise across everyone who participates. So you're considering the average ability or the average experience in that population group. But that fails to recognize that each person is unique and you really need to hone in on the differences between people to understand how to implement programs that accommodate the diversity and, and the differences. 
And so my advice to any CSET professionals or researchers who are listening is that if you want to maximize fitness or training opportunities or engagement in any of these opportunities, as Keely and Miranda spoke about, is you really have to get to know the clients or your participants and their abilities and then work with them to implement a training experience that meets their needs and abilities, not the needs of your research or the needs of your program, but like their program is there to meet the needs of the people who participate in it. And there's no one way to offer exercise for people with disabilities, but I think as Keely and Miranda hit home, there is a best way and that's to really individualize and tailor to the person's abilities and needs, recognizing that that changes over time. Yeah, Jen, I really like what you're saying here about really having it individualized. And I think as fitness professionals, it's really important to, if you're working with somebody with impairments or disabilities, to empower them, to let them know that they are the expert in their body and what they can do, what they struggle to do, and then work with them instead of maybe having the traditional hierarchy of trainers, fitness professionals, where you are going to tell this person what to do. Well, no, it's a team now. You need to know that they are the expert they are aware of what they can do and what their limitations are. And it's up to you to modify whatever it is that you're doing to work for them. It's not up to them to fit your expectations. You, you are um, answering to this person because they know their body best and you need to empower them to give them the confidence to speak up, to say, I don't think this is going to work for me. Can we try something else? And it doesn't mean completely changing the exercise. For me, I can't load overhead. So I can't do an overhead shoulder press with dumbbells. But if we make that a closed chain exercise, so now I'm doing bands, I can do that. So it can be the same, exact same motion, but we're taking it from open chain to closed chain. And that's what works for my body. And I've just been very lucky to have a lot of very knowledgeable um, exercise professionals in my life to help me even just learn what is possible for me. Yeah, and I think... Uh, a big thing for me was always challenging myself, trying to do more, trying to do things that I couldn't do. Right. Whereas now my training program has very much switched to things I can do now, but that I want to still be able to do in three years from now. So like walking lunges, um, without using something for balance aren't my thing, but will I need to do walking lunges? No, but I will need to get off the ground. So turning my lunge more into like, instead of a walking lunge, just a static lunge or depending on the day too, that's a, a huge thing too, is there's days where your body, when you live with disability, just don't function the same where that flexibility of programming needs to come in. And so, yeah, my program might have to look different day to day, depending on is my knee giving out today? Am I having pain? And it's, it's like that with anybody, but then picking up exercises and switching your training program. So it's not just things to challenge you, but things to uplift you too, right. To see that success versus even if it's something simple, like being able to do 10 step-ups instead of no step-ups the day before, you know, so that you get that mental, that mental game is so significant when you live with disability, that that gym experience and that training program have to be uplifting or else there gets to be a really defeating feeling that is associated with it. That, that's really um, great, Miranda. You sort of started to hit on what my advice was going to be to the general public and fitness industry professionals about what they can be 
better informed about, and both you and Keely have hinted at this idea that it's not always about how much you're participating. It's about like the quality of your participation when you're in that activity. And so it's, you know, not uncommon for us as a population to think about quantity of participation, right? There's guidelines. We need to be doing this much physical activity or minimizing our sedentary behavior or getting this much sleep. And we often think about quantity and that is important to some degree, but the subjective experience we have within those activities um, needs to be considered as well. And, and a, a really great um, framework that has been developed within the context of physical activity for a disability is the quality participation framework. And it outlines that there's six elements to lead that lead to a positive experience in physical activity. And so Miranda, you've already spoken to the idea of challenge. And so feeling appropriately challenged, um, wanting to you know, have a little bit of competition with yourself and feeling like you can push yourself. But at the same time, the second element is mastery. And so feeling like you're experiencing achievement, that you have some confidence and that you have accomplished something um, with your physical activity that day. A third element is autonomy. So having some sort of independence or choice or control over the type of activity that you're doing, whether that be parasport, exercise, or just going for um, a bike ride, even Keeley, uh, cycling into, into campus, for example. You get to choose to do that, and that's important. There's the aspect of belongingness. So feeling like you're part of a group, that you feel included and accepted and respected by others. And I think Keely and Miranda, you spoke about that when you found your new people, you found your new group and, and how important that was to you to feel accepted in that circle. We also wanna feel engaged. We wanna feel focused in the moment. We wanna experience flow in our activities. And we also want to experience meaning. So we want our activities to feel like they're contributing to either a personally meaningful or a socially meaningful goal or feeling like our, act, our participating in the activity is, um, is, is we have a responsibility to others to participate in our activity. And so all of these six elements should be targeted by fitness professionals and the general public can seek these elements when engaging in activities. But I wanna give a few other key considerations um, because I think Keely and Miranda have highlighted the lived experience of persons with disabilities and how different these um, experiences can be. So a key consideration to keep in mind is that individuals are going to place different values on these different elements. Some people may really want autonomy or they might really want to have a say in their exercise program. But as a fitness professional, you probably have had clients that do not want um, to have a say and they want to place decision making entirely in the hands of their fitness professional. And so to create a quality experience for one person is not exactly the same as another person, remembering that the difference between people is important. The value that an individual will place on well element, one element can change over time. So if belonging is important to a person when they first join you as, as a trainer, um, that, that's, that's great and you can foster that, but keep in tune with how their needs change because potentially challenge and mastery may become more important to them later on as their function um, changes um, for the better or, or if it declines. And then also keep in mind that there's different ways to achieve each of those elements. So for example, to achieve belongingness in an exercise program, we know that we can have trained fitness professionals who show care and concern for an exerciser and that would make them feel included. But people can also achieve belongingness 
um, by, by feeling like they have the opportunity to interact with one another and other exercisers who are like them during their exercise sessions or interacting with their fellow exercisers outside of exercise sessions. And so any programming should, should take into account that there are different ways to achieve these things and you're never going to know unless you talk to the people that you're working with. So again, that key message that Keely and Miranda shared. Um, and so this, you know, I've, I've tried to break some research down into um, some, some actionable nuggets here, but if people want to learn more about quality participation, they can visit, um, listeners can visit the Canadian Disability Participation Project website at cdpp.ca backslash sport hyphen exercise. And then if listeners want more information about the RevDev program or the research that we do around exercise programming, they can go to revdepgroup.ca. So that's R-E-V-V-E-D-U-P group.ca. Awesome conversation so far. We'll pick back up from here in the next episode. I want to thank Keely, Miranda, and Jen again for being on the show, and I look forward to hearing more in the very near future. For the links Jen mentioned in this episode, please see the show notes for this episode. CSEP members, remember to log in and add today's code word, Tokyo, to your PDCs.